This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. David Beller was almost a veterinarian. Anyone who's been represented by him in his practice as a criminal defense lawyer or had the pleasure of hearing him speak, and maybe even some opposing counsel, would argue how lucky we are that David decided to become a lawyer. From almost the moment he joined the bar in Denver, David has been recognized as one of the top trial lawyers in Colorado and is often consulted and quoted by national news organizations. David's path to professional success, though, is defined by his path of personal growth and discovery. Linda Moss and Mallory Revel had the chance to hear from David in his own words about his path to leadership and the experiences that shaped his character and his dedication to trust, integrity, and vulnerability in his relationships with clients. Hello and welcome to Our Voices. I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Coombe, Curry, Rich, and Jarvis. I'm here with Mallory Revel of Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher. And today we are thrilled to be speaking with David Beller, who's a criminal attorney with Recht Kornfeld. Hello, I'm thrilled to be here. So David, let's jump right in. We're going to talk a little bit today about who you've been, who you are, and who you're going to be. So let's jump in and tell us a little bit about who David Beller was growing up. Oh, that's a... Boy, I, I <laughs> was expecting to start out talking about like being a criminal lawyer. Um, <laughs> let's go way back. Tell us about baby David Beller. We're going to go way, <laughs> way back. So I actually uh, grew up here. I'm, I think I'm the only Denver native in the entire oh. city. And I say Denver native. Yeah. It's, it's suburban, actually. So I grew up in... I, Grew up in North Glen. I am one of four kids. I am number two. I'm the only boy. Um, my parents were very blue-collar individuals. My dad was a construction worker my whole life. My mom was a letter carrier my whole life. And so uh, growing up, it was it was a very happy family, a very happy place to be. Um, but one in which uh, I think me coming out as a lawyer and, and uh, going on and getting a law degree was just not expected. It was certainly hoped for, but never expected. Did you say coming out as a lawyer? Coming out as a lawyer. Coming out in so many different ways. We'll get into that. You're peeling back layers. We're early in the onion. Awesome. Well, let's let's start working towards coming out as a lawyer because I'm fascinated to hear about what that was like. But as a kid, what did you want to be? I desperately wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, and, and I think sure. most kids want yeah. want to be vets, right? I, I wanted yeah. to be a veterinarian. We didn't really have pets when we were young uh, due to some allergies. And so I was obsessed with animals and thought I was going to be a vet my entire life. In fact, I, I didn't actually switch until I was probably in my mid-20s. Uh, before I decided that I was going to go on to law school. Uh, so, you know, that that was where my passion was. It was where my heart was. In many ways, it still is. Frankly, anyone who knows me knows that I probably have uh, a, a 
bit too deep of an obsession with uh, not just wild animals around uh, our home in the mountains, but also around my dogs. Who are adorable, to be fair. They <laughs> are adorable. They are, um, you know, the products have thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of training that you would absolutely never know. <laughs> so. So they can't like balance balls on their noses or anything? No, they can't. And they also can't keep all four paws on the ground despite uh, <laughs> all their different training. So they're great. Hopefully everybody awesome. gets to meet them. They're awesome. <laughs> so I know that you had several very interesting jobs um, before you went to law school. One of those is my favorite, and I'll let you guess which. But tell us a little bit about your journey to being a lawyer. Wait, so- were you a circus trainer? Almost. Close. <laughs> Very close. Yes. Almost. That's actually the surprisingly there. a surprisingly good guess. So uh, I guess in my path of being a veterinarian, I, I went to uh, school at Colorado State University. Uh, I went to CSU in Fort Collins. I thought for sure that it was for the purpose of going on to vet school. And so I started out being a wildlife biology major. Uh, and I thought that I was going to, you know, I suppose work in a natural park or national park rather, and that I was going to take care of all the animals and everybody was going to uh, sort of live in uh, the movie Bambi. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that sort of started out to be my path. And I actually uh, was really enjoying it and had the opportunity to Mallory's point to uh, spend a semester at the Philadelphia Zoo, which few would know or or care, I suppose, but that is actually the country's first zoo. Uh, And it's still operational and it's, it's beautiful. So I believe it was my junior year of college Uh, I decided to just pack up my bags and move to Philadelphia, and I lived at the University of Penn uh, on the campus and worked at a hotel in Center City, Philadelphia in order to be able to pay my bills and did live animal shows at the Philadelphia Zoo all day, every day. And it was such a cool experience. And and what's interesting is it translated very, very well to being a trial lawyer. because <laughs> Naturally. It, naturally, right? You, you end up holding God only knows what animal, um, oftentimes reptiles or, or, you know, birds or birds of prey or something along those lines, and standing in front of hundreds of people and just speaking for an hour or two and and, uh, having to respond to the unexpected of, you know, for example, an animal biting you or jumping off your shoulder or another animal walking onto the stage or whatever it may be. And so I learned skills that, frankly, I use to this day. So that is the first time, I suppose, that any lawyer is going to equate being a trial lawyer (laughs) with uh, doing live animal shows uh, at a zoo, but they actually do complement each other quite well. I'm Did you, positive you're the only person who's <laughs> had that experience. Which animal bit you? Uh, oh, reptiles all the time. Oh. All, all the time. And everybody's afraid of snakes. I actually find them quite fascinating. But I, I have really fun pictures of being, you know, 21 years old with like these crazy 12-foot boa constrictors wrapped around my body as I'm speaking to uh, a room full of Amish people. Uh, so it's actually really cool. It's fun. <laughs> Did you ever have the occasion to be employed in Weld County, Colorado? Oh, Mallory, it's like I'm feeding you the questions. (laughs) Um, So I came back from Philadelphia. I uh, finished my education at CSU. 
I uh, ended up getting my degree not in wildlife biology, uh, but rather deciding to go into environmental science or public health, uh, which was at the time a good foundation for choosing to go on to law school, or excuse me, choosing to go on to vet school. Uh, and so part of my degree program required me to also work in the field. And so uh, this little gay kid wearing my Gap khakis and my little cute Gap tee uh, got a job at the Weld County Health Department. And so uh, one of the largest counties in the state. And so I drove all over the county all day, every day, uh, doing anything and everything that you can imagine a uh, public health inspector to do from uh you know, uh, inspecting hole-in-the-wall restaurants to walking into uh, gyms and, and hotels and testing the chlorine level of the pool and the hot tub to air quality issues to, unfortunately, um, mentally ill individuals who believed that there were aliens landing in their lawn and they would call the health department. And so they would always send me as opposed to somebody who had uh, perhaps a bit more experience. So, it, you know, uh, ultimately uh, going into fields and telling farmers and ranchers that they couldn't leave their dead cow on, on the land, but they had to bury it. And so it was a really fun experience. It was a really yeah. interesting experience. And it also taught me that I didn't want to be a health inspector for the rest of my life, despite <laughs> my education. Did you find any aliens, though? Never, never found Ugh. an, never found an alien. Although I will say that I found a lot of, um, I learned a lot of qualities for compassion mm. and empathy. Yeah. In recognizing mentally ill, and and I could be dismissive and say this isn't realistic, and and leave the person, or I could sit and really listen uh, to what they had to say, and and him or her perspective, and hopefully bring them a little bit of comfort. You have an uncanny knack for taking some wonderful life lessons from each of these jobs as a young person. Um, tell us how this all translated to law school. I, uh, you know, this is an unpopular answer, um, but I think it, it's very emotionally raw and real. Um, my journey to law school was incredibly ego-based, to be honest with you. Um, sure. There are, you know, aspects of my life that we can get into uh, as to why education continued to be so important to me. But, you know, I found myself at that point at, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old. I was a health inspector. I wasn't crazy about being a health inspector. At that point, I decided that vet school probably wasn't for me. And my boss's husband was a lawyer. And I liked the way that sounded. And it was ego-driven. And since I wasn't at a place in my life where I was doing a lot of dating or, or settling down with anybody, um, I wasn't distracted by the tyranny of the libido at that point. Mm. And so, you know, sort of thought, wow, it, it sounds great to be called a lawyer. And I'm not sure that my motivation was any greater than that. Um, I'm always jealous of, of the people who say, wow, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And I had this driving passion to be an attorney and to, and to look for justice and to do all of those things. And while I had experiences of being opinionated and, and really feeling like I needed to stand up for the little guy, I'm not sure I, I necessarily translated that into being an attorney. 
And once I got comfortable with the idea of being called a lawyer, I started to develop a passion for wanting to go to law school. And I think like um, most individuals, uh, well, uh, that's a statistic that I'm citing, most individuals who are 21, 22, 23, who are wanting to go to law school, I desperately wanted to be a uh, environmental attorney. That, mm-hmm. And that was that was sort of what I set out to do. And then in law school, my path took me somewhere different. And I want to assure you that uh, I don't think most people who go to law school and who decide to be lawyers are those people who are like, yes, I'm a justice warrior. And I mean, like, honestly, listening to your story just made me think of my story, which I've told several times because I think it's silly. I decided in eighth grade that I was going to be a lawyer because I did mock trial and it was fun (laughs) and kept that motivation from eighth grade until... I'm a lawyer now. <laughs> and look at how it turned out, right? And a good lawyer I'm still now. still a lawyer, yeah. <laughs> so I think that, like, I do admire those people who, you know, came into it saying, I'm going to be a fighter for justice. But I don't think, I don't think it's, it's at all a bad thing that you came into it saying, you know, I think that lawyer sounds good. <laughs> right. I just wanted the title. I, yeah. I liked I liked the ego boost. No, I had no idea that I was going to have to go through three years of school in a bar exam. I don't think the th- bar exam, <laughs> those things actually crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, but actually being called a lawyer and having that ego boost sounded really, really interesting to me. And so that's really what started me thinking of going to law school. And at what point did you come out as a lawyer to your family? Oh, well, probably about then. But, you know, I I, um, came from a Hispanic family that takes a great deal of pride in the success of the other generations. And so I think my parents were thrilled with the idea of me going on to, uh, frankly, they were thrilled that I graduated college. Nobody else in my family had ever graduated college before. Uh, and so I think going to college and graduating was a huge source of pride. But then being able to tell their friends and and the larger family members that I was a lawyer, uh, I think is something that, boy, 17 years later has still not worn off. Uh, and, you know, well, we all now see it as an, as an accomplishment because, of course, it is for all of us. Um, it fills me with pride to know how much pride it fills them with. Mm-hmm. What did your sisters wind up doing? Uh, my uh, sisters, and I have three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my older sister works for a uh, school district. She runs a before and after school program and is extremely successful. Cool. Uh, my younger sister is a real estate agent and is uh, still, even at 43, finding her way a little bit. But she's happy and, and very healthy. Mm-hmm. And then my youngest sister, there's a 13-year age gap. My younger sister is 30. And she just graduated with her bachelor's degree and is now going on to graduate school. So um, a bit of a bit of a trailblazer in my own sense. And I'm thrilled that other people have been able to accomplish that as well. Awesome. Yeah. So what was law school like for you? So uh, I am so surprised to hear people and 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 in fact, prior to today, you both told me that so many people um you know, did not have a good law school experience for one reason or another. I personally absolutely loved law school. Uh, I, I don't know that I loved, you know, the 
day-to-day get up and study and case brief and, and in my case, book brief um, and, and doing all of those things. But it was the social aspect of law school that was so incredibly special for me. The the first, you know, 21, 22, 23 years of my life, um, I was in the closet. So to then be in law school at age 25, and I think for the first time in my life, uh, live openly and live loudly, and, and to have found some comfort with who I was, uh, law school was an opportunity to socialize with like-minded people and for me to live a life that was both vulnerable and honest, which ultimately created relationships and a closeness in the relationships that um, I had never really experienced before due to limitations that I put on myself. And so I look back at law school having made lifelong friends and and some of my closest friends in my life are still people that I spent three years poring over case law with. Uh, so my experience in law school was phenomenal, and and uh, I feel bad for those who had a different experience because um, I enjoyed it. And I apologize. Where did you say you went to law school? I went to law school in Ohio at the University of Toledo. So um, I, being first generation, yeah, uh, knew very little about graduate schools. Knew very little about applying for graduate schools, and so I applied to all the sort of typical universities. I think that most people do, certainly in Denver, CU, DU, um, and then I thought Malibu sounded cool, so I applied to Pepperdine, <laughs> and you know that that's just sort of the way I applied to law schools. And University of Toledo at the time was building their program. Uh, it was a good school. I think it was, you know, at the time, law schools were were still tiered. It wasn't first tier, or it was at the bottom of first tier, top of second, I think. But they were trying to attract a more diverse uh, student population, and it was a free online application. And at the time... I didn't have a whole lot of money, and all I had to yep. do was check a box. Free applications are good. Free applications. <laughs> that's how people find lo- find schools, right? Uh-huh. And so I clicked the box thinking to myself, um, I've never been to Toledo. Uh, frankly, I've never really heard of Toledo. And if I end <laughs> up in Toledo, somebody please put me out of my misery. And they responded with a scholarship. So, uh, you know, I chase the money. And I think was a bit naive about um, pedigree. I was a bit naive about uh, how my classmates would ultimately someday be my referral sources, how you know small the legal community is. Now, if I could do it all over again, would I? Absolutely, without question. But I went into it with a certain naivety, not realizing all these different factors. Um, but I also didn't have the mentors and the family experience to really be able to, uh, I think, direct me and instill some of those lessons in me. So I don't regret my decision uh, at all, but I went into it incredibly naively. I feel like that's actually something that's very underexplained about law school. And I had the exact same experience where I was thinking, okay, well, where would be nice for me to go to school? And I'm thinking like, what places are well ranked and what places can I afford? And I didn't have any idea that the law school you go to is not necessarily um, completely predictive of where you're going to wind up, but 
it certainly helps if you stay in the same area in the same state as the place that you go to law school because that's also where you're probably doing your internships and you're you know developing all of your uh, professional contacts and it's not something I think that people really fully understand when they go into law school and that's probably something that should be better explained um, you know in the admissions process or somewhere in that realm I think that I think that's absolutely right I, I you know Denver is such and Colorado in general is such a hot legal market. Right. It's incredibly competitive um, to get a job here for good reason. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in Colorado? Yeah. Uh, And so you realize that everybody who is going to school out of state, when they're imagining where they want to raise their family and live their life, uh, they're all applying to the same jobs in Denver. And there is so much preferential treatment given to graduates of the two local universities. Now, for me, that turned out to not be a huge hindrance, but I think that that has more to do with relationships that were developed when I came here. Um, I hope, sort of, you know, I say this with some humility, um, the level of practice in which I was practicing once I did, in fact, come here and, and was practicing, and the reputation that was built, I think I was relatively... Uh, good at knocking down some of those barriers that are set up. But I certainly did not consider those barriers when I clicked the box. Um, Now, I'm fortunate because there was scholarship money involved. I I would do it again in a heartbeat if I had to. Uh, You know, I, I... it was nice to come out with not nearly as many student loans or as much in student loans as many other people. So it was worth the decision, but I wish I would have gone into it a a bit more eyes wide open. Who talked to us a little bit about your professional journey. Tell us about your first job, kind of your progression and about where you are today. So I um, was very fortunate. I didn't really have a whole lot of interest in criminal law. Um, that's not to say I disliked criminal law, but I was as interested in criminal law as what I was in anything else. And and so my general thought was, uh, will you pay me? <laughs> then I'm interested. Fair enough. <laughs> right? Um, and my interest may or may not depend on the number of zeros behind the salary. I'm like, yeah. that's my passion. Um <laughs> I will totally do that area of law. So uh, because I had a bachelor's degree, I thought for sure that I was going to go into patent law or uh, IP. IP is a really interesting subject. Anybody out there who's listening, I value you if you do IP. I am not intending on insulting you. Um, But in law school, the dean said, well, you have a degree in the sciences. You really should go into IP because, frankly, you're going to make a lot more money than, as it turns out, a public defender makes. (laughs) And so, right? I'm like, wait a minute. That is the starting salary I'm in. I love this. This is fascinating. And I took copyright. I took trademark. I I took IP. And 
I just did not have a passion. My eyes were crossing. I couldn't do it. Um, you know, despite sort of that starter, starting salary that I had been told. And so I ended up uh, taking a program with the Municipal Public Defender's Office in Ohio, in Toledo. And I did it because I got into a criminal procedure class and found it so interesting. And, and the a- actual application of the Constitution was interesting. And, and you know, for those law students out there, for the lawyers, you know, of course, we spend so much time learning about and talking about the Constitution. And, of course, it, it you know, dovetails into all different aspects of law. But I say probably none so much as criminal law. And so if you have an interest in uh, the Constitution, criminal law and First Amendment is, is really a fascinating way to live the Constitution every day and really understand its application to our day-to-day life. So I started working at the uh, Municipal Public Defender's Office in Ohio. I uh, had gotten a, a job interview with the Public Defender's Office in Col- Colorado, My um, plan at that point was to be a PD, and uh, I had scheduled uh, a flight to come out here. I had an interview. Uh, I remember my parents bought my ticket, and it was $123, which to me as a law student and to my family that didn't have much money, it was a sacrifice for them to give me the $123. And the day before my interview, I got a telephone call that the person who was going to interview me for the public defender system was not able to meet with me due to a minor medical procedure that he was having. And so they needed to reschedule my interview. And that was the end of my public defender career because I couldn't afford, um, nor could I ask my parents for the money again to book another flight to fly from Toledo to come home to interview. And so I explained this to a phenomenal person who, uh, to this day, I admire greatly, Frances Smiley Brown. And Frances, while it was not her role to interview uh, incoming lawyers, Francis agreed to interview me. And so I made my flight. I came out. I interviewed with Francis. She offered me the job. Uh, I was in complete and total heaven. And that was sort of the start of my career in, well, at least as a, as a public defender. Um, and, and what some people don't know is when you work for the public defender's office, they hire you and you have to be willing to go anywhere in the state in order to work. And so I was asked if I'd be willing to go anywhere. I said, um, honestly, yes, I will go anywhere. Uh, in my heart, I'm like, oh, dear God. Yeah, they put you in like Salida. Or... They do, right? And is it like... I'm trying to I, think of like the furthest reaches of Colorado. Trinidad. Trinidad, La Junta, right? La Junta. And as a young gay lawyer who was single at the time, the last thing I wanted to do was to live in La Junta. Uh, with all due respect to anybody out there who lives in La Junta, I, I am certain that it's a beautiful place. Uh, never been, never will go. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, but I, I said that I was willing, and, and truly I was. And, and I will give 
huge props to Francis because I think Francis also recognized that yes, I was willing to go to where you know any jurisdiction, and and I would have been thrilled to do so. But there's also a larger part of professional happiness, and and that also has to necessarily include a certain personal happiness. And so I was incredibly lucky to be placed in a metro area PD's office where. I thrived. I loved it. Where did you wind up? I was in Adams County. Okay. And I was in Adams County PD for three years. Um, I greatly admire any attorney who is in public service and can be in public service for their entire career. I think um, it is one of the most, if not the most, emotionally and morally rewarding jobs that I ever had. I I loved being a PD. Unfortunately for me, um, because I was single, I was living in Denver, I was working as a PD in Adams County, and I was living in a one-bedroom apartment, and I had deferred my student loans as long as I could defer them. And after three years, I had to start paying on my student loans. I was still making a car payment because I had a, what, 20-mile drive every day. Um, And I was living in a studio apartment and barely able to get by. And that is the only reason I I am not still a public defender. I I loved the job. It It was an amazing job. Yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your experience working for the PD's office and just what that was like, especially as as a new attorney um, getting into Colorado. You know, I, I um, it was remarkably rewarding. I, I think what made me a really good PD at the time is, is a certain naivety regarding the um, offenses that I was dealing with every day. It was a naivety regarding the potential for secondary trauma. Uh, And and I don't mean this just for a PD. I think it's also true for judges. I think it's true for district attorneys. Um, Trial law, trial work is hard. It's onerous. It's anxiety-ridden. It's stressful. It's all of those things. Um, But I found great value in being the best attorney that I could be. And uh, the facts of the case were sort of secondary, right? That the emotion of the case, the tragedy of a case in many ways was secondary. It was the, uh, I wanted to do the best job I could do, be the best trial lawyer that I could be. And it was a, a very selfish period in some ways, in the sense that it was all about doing the best job that I could for my client. I think with a little bit of age, I now become much more focused in the underlying emotion and trauma of a case. But at at that point in my career, it was so client-driven. And going back to ego, a lot of it really was ego-driven to do as good of a job as I could possibly do, that I loved my clients and, and still do. That, that 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 hasn't changed, but, uh, you know, really uh, sort of was able to compartmentalize the emotion of the tragedy of a case uh, because it was so ego-filled and also giving for the client to do as good of a job as I could possibly do for a client. And so, like many professions, I think lawyers, 
grow and we grow with age and maturity and experience, um, but also a certain emotional awareness that I think was uh, a protective aspect of my career that uh, has simply evolved now. Now I see it. Now I see clients and cases so much more holistically. And uh, I recognize the emotion of a case. And I think protectively as a young PD, I did not. And, and so as lawyers, we evolve from day one all the way through. And I hope that never stops. So tell us a little bit more about your practice now. So I continue to do criminal law. I, I, I uh, love criminal law. It's in my heart, right? My, my heart will always be a criminal lawyer. I think I have always been somebody, I hope, I I hope sort of that this isn't revisionist history, (laughs) that if somebody is getting picked on, um, I've always been the one to jump in and stand between the bully and that person. I think that uh, criminal lawyers for individuals who who don't quite understand what we do for a living, and I say we because Mallory, you do the same thing. Are you know we're we're not necessarily making excuses for our client. We we're not naive to the pain that our clients sometimes inflict. We are also not naive to the pain that a victim suffers, and, and that of course is assuming guilt. Um. But as a criminal lawyer, I I think it's fascinating that our Constitution says that it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money the government has to prosecute you or how many members of the public absolutely hate you. You get one person who stands up for you no matter what. And I would always much rather be that one person who stands up for that person, who who humanizes them, who insists that not only their constitutional rights are protected, but also that that person is given a certain amount of grace. I, I think humanity owes it to that person to for that individual to have grace. And I love being that person. So I, I'm still doing criminal law, a lot <laughs> of criminal law. Um, my clientele has changed. You know, I went from sort of representing the indigent to now representing, in many cases, the other side uh, of at least the financial side of our society. Uh, And then I'm also doing a a ton of attorney regulation counsel work. It's the same principles. It, it, It is representing now instead of the criminally accused, it's representing attorneys and judges who um, may or may not have made some missteps and now standing in front of that person and that person's license. And so the philosophy behind the areas of practice has never changed. Um, the rules are different. The, the consequences are different. But the passion and the empathy for the person who I represent, who my client is, it do, has not changed at all, whether it's their license or, or their freedom. It's the same representation. Do you find that attorneys are difficult clients or are they easier than (laughs) non-attorneys? Everybody listening out there, if you ever need a lawyer, please be kind to your lawyer. Lawyers are difficult clients. Lawyers are hard clients. Mallory, have you represented lawyers? I don't think I have. Um, I've represented a lot of lawyers. I think um, because lawyers... 
It's ego. Yep. Um, I think lawyers struggle to be vulnerable with other lawyers. Yeah. And that um, sense of pride and that sense of um, wanting to convince me as their lawyer that they really are good lawyers and that they're smart lawyers and that they are worthy of my defense, I think can sometimes get in the way of the authenticity. And so, uh, you know, without without being unnecessarily philosophical, uh, lawyers are tough lawyers because I think we as individuals and as a profession have a difficult time being authentic. We, we portray sort of that Facebook life to ourselves, of ourselves, or Instagram for you young people. Um, and we portray sort of the best of ourselves and have a really difficult time saying, here's where I am struggling. This is what's hard. I messed up and I need you to help me fix it. And I think that we as people just have a difficult time doing that. And that's a challenge, I think, for all of us. We're human beings. We're not a profession. A a lawyer is our title. Um, Lawyer is not who we are. Lawyer is what we do for a living. And and so, yeah, lawyers are difficult. If you think lawyers are difficult, try representing judges. And (laughs) any of my clients who are who are listening, I love you. I'm talking about (laughs) talking about everybody other other than you. Um, Judges can be difficult as well for the exact same reason. It's hard to be vulnerable, and being a really good client means being a very forthcoming, vulnerable client. Yeah. You've said the word vulnerable several times now, and I don't think I've ever told you this, but you've said something that has completely revolutionized my practice, um, particularly my client relationships. Oh, nice. And that is, you can't be trusted if you're not being vulnerable. Where did you, how did you come up with that? So I think that a relationship and uh, relationships are built on trust and authenticity and give and take. And that doesn't mean for a lawyer that there isn't um, a professional guard. I think there has to be a certain professional guard. But I also think that there has to be an emotional interest on both sides. So vulnerability is is a powerful word to me. It's a very um, personal word uh, for me. And and um, many years ago, uh, I was actually in college. We're, we're talking about 21 years ago. So I was a student at Colorado State University, and Matthew Shepard uh, was a friend of mine. Uh, Matt was a student at the time at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, and the closest gay bar was a absolute terrible place in Fort Collins. Gross. Um, uh, Hopefully the owners don't sue me. (laughs) At the time, it was called Nightingales, and and I think it's it's probably been torn down by now. But it was probably the closest uh, safe place for... Uh, a gay individual at that time. And it was certainly the closest place to Laramie. And so Matt would take a limousine from Laramie to Fort Collins. 
uh, a limousine because there were no taxi cabs, obviously long before Uber, Lyft, or even cell phones. Um, uh, well, it wasn't that long ago, and in many ways, it seems like a century ago. And uh, Matt and I became friends, uh, and it's important. Matt's story is not my story. Um, I, you know, we were friends, but we weren't necessarily close. Um, so I'm not meaning to adopt his tragedy somehow as my own. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Matt at the time, uh, ended up meeting a couple of other individuals. And, and while I don't know all the specifics of what happened, he was uh, robbed. And, and during the course of that robbery, uh, Matt was taken out to a field outside of Laramie and he was tied to a split, uh, uh, split log fence and he was pistol whipped and he was left for dead, uh, road biker found him, uh, I think the next day. And Matt continued to live for several years, several days. And Matt was brought to Fort Collins because Fort Collins had a much better, um, medical system, medical service than what Laramie did. And so Matt was at the Poudre Valley Hospital in Fort Collins and I think, I've declared this as sort of being the modern gay rights movement in many ways. There, there was Stonewall. Stonewall was uh, in the 60s. It was 52 years ago, I believe, was Stonewall. Um, uh, but Matt's beating and his discovery, um, all rooted in homophobia and hatred for diversity, hatred for anything different, and, and sexual orientations that were different, uh, really launched a national movement. And we had, you know, every major news organization in, in the country and, and probably several from the world descended on Fort Collins. Um, Ellen DeGeneres very famously gave a gay rights speech on the steps of the U.S. Capitol and launched what I think is um, equality for an entire generation of people. Um, but the, the, the point of this is that uh, during the homecoming parade, uh, Matt was in the hospital. I decided that I was going to go out with, I think, the two other gay people in Fort Collins. Um, we were the Gay and Lesbian Student Union, and we were going to march in the homecoming parade. And so we, we marched, and we had a banner, and we marched in the homecoming parade. And there was a fraternity and a sorority that were also marching in the parade directly behind us, and they created a float. And the float was a split-rail fence, with a scarecrow tied to it. And on the front of the scarecrow, they had painted, I am gay. And on the back of the scarecrow, they had painted, up my ass. And this float was um, paraded through the streets of Fort Collins in front of um, Matt and in front of the uh, Poudre Valley Hospital. And uh, in front of all the news cameras and, and news crews who were at the hospital covering his beating and, and subsequent death. And I, I remember marching and I remember thinking, somebody's going to pull them out. Like, what, are we supposed to just keep marching and pretending that these people aren't directly behind us? And, and I remember the cheers of the crowd and I remember um, uh, the laughter from the crowd. And this went on, which seems like an eternity, with no one stepping in and stopping this float from going through the city. 
And I wrote, I, I was outraged. This is sort of one of the first instances of advocacy in, in my life. I was outraged and I was hurt and I was upset and I was horrified. And I was horrified that there didn't seem to be a media response. There didn't, certainly was not a university response. And the public found all of this so humorous and jovial, and it was just horrifying to me. And so I wrote a letter to the Rocky Mountain News that called for discipline for the fraternity and the sorority. And I sent the letter, and I was quite proud of myself. And after I sent the letter, it dawned on me, um, I've never come out to my mom and dad. And not only have I never come out to my mom and dad, but my mom and dad happened to read the Rocky Mountain News every <laughs> single day. And so there were several ex expletives and, and, um, you know, a few sleepless, sleepless nights and realizing that I needed to come out with my fa to my family, not only so that they didn't read about this in, in the Rocky Mountain News, um, but also so that they had an understanding of what my experience was and what I was going through internally related to not just the experience with uh, the fraternity sorority float duo, but also my friend Matt being down the street in the hospital um, and, and uh, unfortunately dying. So uh, there, uh, I called my parents. My parents were phenomenal, um, a, a, as you would imagine. They were amazing. I think typical of the late 90s, which is when the AIDS epidemic was um, still very much at a height in uh, the United States. My parents had real concerns out of compassion for me, which is that I was going to die of AIDS because that's all that was thought of gay men at that point. Um, my parents were worried that the same thing that happened to Matt was going to happen to me. My parents were had to go through a period of grieving and mourning. Uh, that my life was not going to look like the way they thought it was going to look. And ultimately, it was all coming from a place of compassion for me and concern for me. I, I think um, much of their perspective was also rooted in homophobia. However, it, it wasn't a hatred, right? It was more of an ignorance uh, as opposed to a fear. And that really, frankly, is what taught me vulnerability because in authenticity, um, I was close to my parents. I loved my parents. My parents were close to me. Uh, my parents loved me, but there was a huge aspect of my life that I kept secret from them. And without being able to give them that authenticity and that sincerity and that vulnerability, it kept us from forming a closer relationship. And so while I don't necessarily come out to clients, I don't know that I need to, I don't know that it's ever necessary, but that, that lesson in authenticity and that lesson in vulnerability, I think, is truly what taught me that in order to make a connection with another individual, you have to be both authentic and you also have to be vulnerable. And I think that that translates into all aspects of our life up to and including 
negotiating cases with opposing counsel, up to and including representing uh, your client, up to and including making arguments to the court. There's all these aspects of ourselves that we can't divorce from the job that we are retained to do. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, There's no graceful way to transition from such a powerful story, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So I want to ask you, what's next for you? I find great value at this point. I'm, I'm 44. I've been practicing for 17 years. And I still love practicing law. I I love criminal law. I love um, ethics. But I have found a new passion, and that is grooming the passion in other lawyers um, and in teaching and in mentoring and, and in finding those young lawyers who are as hungry as I was when I was 27 years old in a courtroom and really sort of pushing them to be the superstar lawyers that value diversity and experience and education and, and, uh, you know, all of the things that make up a client and really monopolizing on that and turning it into just great, strong advocacy. Well, the legal community will be so much better that that is your passion because you're a phenomenal mentor. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. It's been such a pleasure to have you here today. We couldn't appreciate your time more. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Rebel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarty. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.